First Samuel, chapter 22. Beginning in verse one, it says, David, therefore, departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him and everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. Sort of sounds like a Calvary Chapel Bible study, huh? So he became captain over them and there were about 400 men with him. Then David went from there to Mitzvah, Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now, the prophet Gad said to him, said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went to, into the forest of Eret. When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now, Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree and Ramah with his spear in his hand. And all his servants standing about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? All of you have conspired against me, and there's no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there's not one of you who is sorry for me. Or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as it is this day. <laughs> then answered Doeg the Edomite who was set over the servant of Saul and said, I saw the son of Jesse going to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So the king sent to call Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were in Nob. And they all came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. He answered, Here I am, my lord. Then Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him and that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day. So Ahimelech answered the king and said, and who among your servants is as faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law? Who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any in the house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of this, little or much. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. And the king said to Doeg, you turn and kill the priests. So Doeg the Edomite 
turned and struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. Also nobbed the city of the priests. He struck with the edge of the sword both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. And one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priests. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doag the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not fear. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. But with me, you shall be safe. Do you remember the lowest point in your life? You don't have to tell me, but I want you to think about it just for a moment. I want you to remember that time in your life when you thought it couldn't go any lower. David has already played the madman at Gath. He has slobbered all over himself and acted like a crazy man. From Gath, he has escaped to the cave at Adjalam. You know what's interesting about low points in your life? Right when you thought you'd reached the lowest, a surprise often shows up. And you find that you could go just a little bit lower. And again, David's life, like I said, is an encouragement because it mirrors our own feelings and our own heart and sometimes our own faith and our own failure. And it's interesting. You should do a study at some point. But when David was running from Saul, he wrote eight different psalms. He kept a diary, if you will, and he wrote it in verse. And in verse 1, it says, David therefore departed from there, that is Gath, and escaped to the cave of Adjalam. I've been at this cave. It will house about two or three hundred people comfortably. It says, so when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Now, the cave is located south and east of Bethlehem. It could very well be that David discovered it as a boy while he was herding his father's sheep in the area or one of his older brothers found it or his father found it. But I want you to think of the cave of Adullam as sort of a, an ancient Palestine panic room. It's the place where you go when it looks like the world is collapsing. And David doesn't announce his need. But apparently his father and mother and brothers and family find out. David is in trouble. And God knows he's in trouble. Now, this becomes an important issue for each and every one of you, because you will find yourself sometime in your life in trouble. But the truth is, and you need to understand this, you need to understand this, that at the moment that you're in trouble, God knows that you're in trouble. Sometimes we think that the only way that God can find out is if we tell the pastor. Or at least someone on staff. 
it's pretty important that they know that you're in trouble. The Lord sends David reinforcements, family, friends. And again, the family must have known about the cave and followed David to the cave. And David is in this dark, empty hole. And make no mistake about it, he feels broken and he feels alone. And he doesn't feel like he can rely on anyone. By the way, when you're broken and you're hurt, there's usually one of two things that happens to you. You want to be around people or you don't want to be around people. And I suspect that we might have had a situation that's a little bit of both. You don't want anyone else around. And when you don't want anyone else around, guess what? People typically don't want you around. Now, in verse six, Saul is under a tamarisk tree in Ramah. And he's and David is hiding out in the cave. Sort of hole in the wall style. It's a place of isolation and separation. Saul speaks from a tree. And all Israel can hear what Saul has to say, but no one seems to care what he says. David is in a hole and in a cave. But you know what's interesting about this hole in this cave at Agilom? His family is there and his friends are there. And sometimes when worship is there and fellowship is there and praise is there and prayer is there and family are there and friends are present, that even a hole that seems like a dungeon can become a place of sweet, sweet fellowship. Now, I want you to understand something. The spirit of the Lord is with David in the dark dungeon. And the spirit of the Lord has abandoned Saul, even though he's in the open spaces. And for us as Christians, whether we're in prison or whether we're in paradise, the loveliest place in all the world to be is the place where Jesus is. And guess what? It is better to be with Jesus in prison than to be without Jesus. In what seems like an earthly paradise. David records his thoughts. And it's found in Psalm 142. And what I want you to do. Is I want you to turn to a Psalm 142. And I'm going to read it in its entirety. And again I want you to read it with me. In Psalm 142. Beginning in verse 1. And even before verse 1. Uh, some of your Bibles might show a little. Blur, an experience of deliverance. My Bible says a contemplation of David, a prayer when he was in the cave of Agilom. This is what we're reading about in First Samuel. David writes, I cry out to the Lord with my voice, with my voice to the Lord. I make my supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. 
In the way in which I walk, they have secretly set a snare for me. Look on my right hand and see, for there's no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. Have you ever said something like that? I don't think anyone understands what I'm going through. Verse five, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge. My portion in the land of the living attend to my cry for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I bring my soul out of prison that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me for you shall deal bountifully with me. Now, we're going to pause for just a moment because I need to show you a couple of things. David is in this cave. And he writes this song. Sometimes when you're by yourself, sometimes when you're in a dark place, sometimes when you're in an isolated place, sometimes when you're in a place of separation or the whole. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You begin to think a lot about your life, don't you? Lord. How did I get here? Lord, what am I doing here? That's exactly what's happening to David. He began to write out his feelings. And he captures that profound depression. But it also doesn't just reveal the depression. It also presents a plan from moving out of the depression and into a new attitude with the Lord. And sometimes that's exactly the problem. People are more than happy to talk about the despair and they're more than happy to talk about the pain and they're more than happy to talk about the depression, but they don't go from the place of depression to the place of praise. And that's the path that David will find. The simple psalm describes the condition of his soul. And then it describes a pathway to praise. And I think that this becomes important because remember what praise is. It's a declaration of the attributes of God and the character of God and the mercy of God and the majesty of God and all that God can do. In verse two, he says, I pour out my complaint before him. You know, this is interesting to me because a lot of people don't feel like they can talk to God. Lord, do I dare tell you what I'm really thinking? He knows what you're thinking. It's not like it's a big, fat, stinking surprise to him. David knew what it meant to be forsaken. David knew what it meant to be in distress. And in that distress, People begin to gather to David and David knew what it meant to be hurt and David knew what it meant to be hunted. And sometimes God will allow us to experience pain and suffering and accusation. So that we can identify with people in pain. And people who are suffering. And people who are accused. You never, ever ever can begin to identify with a person in pain and in suffering until you've had a tiny taste of what they've experienced. 
David describes his pain as being overwhelming with him in, in verse three. He says, when my spirit was overwhelmed within me and the Hebrew word is even more dramatic. The phrase literally means in the muffling of my spirit in the Hebrew. It's a poetic sense. And the picture that he's painting is imagine that you're wrapped up in a blanket of terror and fear. So much so that it drowns out the spirit within you. You remember when you were a kid and, and you were underneath the covers and you would cry out underneath the covers? And the blankets sort of muffled the cry. That's the picture that he's painting. That his depression and his terror and his fear are so surrounded by this blanket that the true him on the inside doesn't seem to be able to get out. The sorrow, the woe, is like a blanket choking and stifling his spirit and his powers of thought and judgment. He feels almost impaired like a man who faces the current of the ocean. Have you ever been to the, the ocean and you think, hey, I'm going to wade out into the ocean and all of a sudden the current comes and it just sort of takes you away. and You have no choice but to go with it. That's the kind of thing that he's talking about. David describes a burden, a load that is so heavy and so great that he feels like his spirit is being crushed. What you need to know is that all of us experience that kind of pressure at one time or another. David is hunted by the king. David is haunted by the death of the priests. And David finds himself hounded by the people around him who are hurt and they're afraid. So part of what I need you to do is to ask yourself this question. Have you ever seen this cave? Have you ever sat in this cave? If you've seen this cave and if you've sat in this cave, now you understand a little bit about how David is feeling hollow, hurt, alone. He is surrounded by people, but he feels deserted. Verse four of Psalm 142. I looked on my right hand and behold, there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. I'm surrounded by people, but nobody seems to understand what's going on. Problems by their very nature, by the way, tend to isolate us. When you're hurt and you're afraid. For many of us, it seems to make sense to be by yourself. We build a cocoon of confusion. But in that cocoon of confusion, sometimes we have a misunderstanding and we are misled because we think that no one has ever hurt like we hurt. No one has ever felt what we felt. No one has ever had the kinds of circumstances, the fear or the trauma that we're struggling with. And you would be mistaken. Because the truth is. Pain, sorrow, distress. Distress. Is a common 
factor. And the very fact that God, look what he says, knows my path. David says in verse five, God knows my path. It gives David a sense of hope. The moment that he goes, Lord, you know exactly where I am and you know exactly what I'm doing. When men forsake you, God picks him up. He says, I cried out to you, O Lord, in my refuge. Everyone has let him down. And the Lord promises not to fail. David says, here I am. I'm humbled and I'm brought down low in verse six. And you remember the statement. How low can you go? How do you go lower than the lowest you've ever been? And that's David. You know, there was a commercial back in the day that used to say wider is better. The same could be true spiritually. Even though lower is slower, the Bible seems to indicate that you get closer to the Lord, the humbler you are. You know what humility and brokenness provides? A profound sense of dependence. Everything's broken. Everything's gone. I have nothing else to trust. Hey, this is great. Now you're exactly in the position where I think I can use you. David describes being surrounded by a group of the righteous and giving thanks for the assurance of deliverance. David receives the down payment, the first fruits of hope. And God receives praise. And now all of a sudden, David sees a way to go forward. I love that expression. I am brought very low. Because David uses a Hebrew word, which means literally depression. But it's not the depression that you might think. It's indentation. Have you ever seen a hole in the ground or where a rock has been hit the ground and then you move the rock and there's this indentation in the ground? That's what he's talking about. He's equating the indentation with the circumstances of his life. But remember, when you're reading the psalm, don't stop at the disorientation. Don't stop at the desertion. Don't stop at the depression. You go, I'm reading disorientation. I'm reading desertion. I'm reading depression. But keep going. David says, I cried out to the Lord. And he ends up saying, you have dealt bountifully with me. So how does David move from depression and dejection to confidence? I'm going to just tell you something about this particular psalm. David cries to the Lord. He pours out his complaint. And then David not only tells the Lord what he's feeling. But he also reminds himself. That this God knows who he is and where he's going. And he begins to praise him. By the way, if you're hurt and if you're depressed, it's okay for you to tell the Lord what you're feeling. But make no mistake about it. You need to move from the declaration of depression to the exclamation of praise. I'm thinking about coming up with a new therapy called praise therapy. 
Now, again, it isn't just singing the song that lifts your spirit. Have you ever sang a song, but you didn't really believe it? Sometimes we come to church and we praise the Lord, but we don't really believe it. David tells God how he's feeling. He presents his problem to the Lord, but then he envisions the power and the provision of the Lord. And he goes to the place of victory. Now, the reason why this becomes important is because the very first people who ever came to Jesus were the poor, the afflicted, the weak and the broken. No wonder David's son could refer to his famous father and call himself the son of David. Look at verse two. Now, I know all of that for verse one. Now, verse two. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was discontented gathered to him. And they, there were about him 400 men. Doesn't this sound like a Dave Ramsey financial freedom seminar? I know nobody understands the joke unless you've actually seen the seminar. But some of us know what it's like to have a Bible study where everyone in distress, where everyone in debt, where everyone discontented shows up. And you go, hey, let's have a Bible study. Now, David can be favorably compared to his future son, the Lord Jesus. Remember what David is doing. David is living in a time of rejection in his own life. And by the way, for those of you who like Bible study and chronology, David's rejection is going to last about 10 years. In a sense, the rejection of Jesus lasted his whole ministry. And in another sense, the rejection of Jesus continues even to this day. Some of you know that. You've talked with your mother, your father, your brothers, your sisters. You've told them about Jesus and they go, "Mm, that's not for me. Thanks, but... No, thanks. But the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that if we identify with Jesus in his rejection, he's willing to identify with us in his glory, isn't he? Are you willing to walk with me when nobody else wants to do it? Well, guess what? If you'll walk with me now, you'll walk with me later. And so David attracts certain kinds of people, everyone in distress Everyone in debt, everyone discontented. (laughs) Jesus seems to attract exactly those people, those in distress, those who are in debt, those who are discontented. They all have one thing in common. They've lost everything. And they've risked everything. And everyone in distress, that means with no visible means of comfort, those in debt, means without the possibility of clearing their own names. Those who are discontented, you know who those are? Those are the embittered people. They're embittered in their spirit. Can you imagine how many people begin to tell David their story in that cave? Can you imagine the tales of hardship? And can you imagine the tales of injustice? And you know what I know? That if we had time, that each and every one of you could tell a tell. Imagine that we spent the rest of our time over the next year having each and every one of you come up and tell your story. I think what you would discover is 
something very, very interesting. That all of us could tell a tale of hardship. A tale of injustice. There are many tales that can be told in the dark confines of a cave. But remember what all of these people have in common. They're running from Saul. So what do you suppose David told them? Do you think it's a stretch that he began to sing Psalm 142? Do you think it's a stretch that he began to tell each person in the in the tale of sorrow, the tale of injustice, the tale of suffering that he began to sing? I have a refuge and my refuge is God. And now all of a sudden things are going to be profoundly different. By the way, the people who followed David are only remembered in history because they followed David. But isn't that true in the New Testament? What would you know about Peter and what would you know about James and what would you know about John unless you first discovered that they followed Jesus? And you know, it's the most amazing thing about you. And the most amazing thing about me is that if each and every one of us have a tale to tell, it should be a tale about how our life changed because we decided to follow Jesus. I want just for a moment to look at the men, the people, if you will, who were drawn to David. Look at that word distress again. The Hebrew word is zuk. Isn't that a cool word? Zook. It means in the Hebrew language, under pressure. It really does. It means stress. I had a person not too long ago say to me about some of the stress she had been experiencing. And I said, you know what? It's been my experience. Only one person or, or there's only one type of person I've ever met who has no stress whatsoever. Dead people. The people at the cave of Agilom, these are people under pressure. These are people who are stressed out. Someone once said, quote, each of us has an optimal stress level to keep stress from becoming distress. We must have only the right amount, but the right kind for the right duration. Distress often results from prolonged or unvaried stress or from frustration. I like that. There, there are people who are oppressed and persecuted by Saul. Now, remember, when we see the word Saul, what should come to our mind immediately is the flesh. Remember, your flesh is everything that you are apart from Christ. Your, your flesh is everything that you try to do to please God apart from the person of David's son. And so they're being hounded by Saul. And it's interesting to me. These people who were loyal to Saul became disloyal to Saul. When did they become disloyal to Saul? Well, you know, Saul tried to kill me. Yeah, that could put a little damper in the relationship, can't it? 
Now, think about that for just a moment. These people were loyal to Saul. These people were loyal until all of a sudden injustice and pain and sorrow. Saul began to make life unbearable for them until their very lives were threatened. Some of you have that same story about your own flesh. Well, my flesh wanted to drink, but then I realized that I was going to die if I continued to drink. I wanted to drug, but then I realized that I was going to die if I continued to drug. I wanted to do this and that. I wanted to satisfy myself. I embarked on a journey and the journey led me to a place where I discovered something. That this world and the devil are trying to kill me. How can people remain loyal to Satan when his ultimate goal and his ultimate desire is to kill you? You know, when he's not trying to kill me, though, he's basically a good person. See, you laugh at how nonsensical that sounds. Until you remember back to perhaps the lowest point in your life. We live in a culture and a society where there's real hatred and there's real persecution and there's real animosity and there's real jealousy and there's real fear. And if you've ever been a part of a minority, if you've ever been a black person in a white world or Hispanic or an Asian person in an all white world or a female in a male world or a poor person in a rich world or a debtor in a a, or, or let's say this, if you've ever been debt free. In a world that's drowning with debt, you feel outside. You may have been assigned a label. Mentally, emotionally unstable. You may have experienced injustice or oppression or isolation. And so you show up at the cave. And there's David. Or later, you show up at the cave and there's David's son. No wonder Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Remember Jesus, when he opened up his ministry, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news. To those who are in bondage, to those who are afflicted. If you've experienced injustice or oppression or isolation, Jesus is looking for you. Jesus is looking for you to turn to him. There are so many people in distress because of unemployment or underemployment, because of illness or sin, because people look for answers in unrestricted sex and drugs and alcohol and gangs and pornography and philosophy and science in suicide. Some people embrace what they think is a safe solution to their life's problem until they fall off a cliff. No wonder Jesus said in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus can help. You know, this isn't pious platitude. This isn't religious mumbo jumbo. This isn't. Miracle magic talk. A real Jesus can really change your life. He can help. 
In Hebrews 2.18, it says, For in that he himself has suffered being tested, he is also able to aid those who are tested. You know what's good about that scripture? If you are tested, if you are sifted, if you are tempted, if you are in distress, he can help you. You don't know how many times people call me and say, Pastor, I need your help. And I know that I shock and disturb some of you when I say, you know, I really don't think I can help you. But Jesus can help you. I am guilty. I know Jesus can forgive your sin. I am hurt and I am in distress. I know Jesus can help you. <laughs> the next group are those who are in debt. The, the Hebrew word is Nahash. It was J. Vernon McGee who said, Debt is a cancer that destroys under any circumstances. In that day, when a man got into debt, he could lose his property. He could be sold into slavery. Men should have protected, but they weren't. This man, Saul, was permitting men to become slaves. You know why? Because he refused to enforce the Mosaic law. In the Hebrew culture, in the Hebrew tradition, and in the Hebrew law, Jews could not make other Jews slaves. But they decided that under this particular circumstance, the revelation of God didn't matter. And by the way, your problems will begin when you open up the scripture and you come to the conclusion that this doesn't apply to you. You know, <laughs> I remember... A salesman was trying to sell a refrigerator to a housewife and said, lady, you could save on your food bill enough to pay for this refrigerator. And the housewife said, you know what? We're paying for a car so that we can save the bus fare. We're paying on the washing machine so we can save on the laundry bill. We're paying on the television so that we can save by not going to the movies. I don't know if I can afford to save anymore at this time. I don't understand, but some people really get confused about debt. Debt isn't saving. Debt is a form of slavery. You know, there was a wealthy English family that once invited a group of friends to spend some time at their beautiful estate. And the happy gathering was was plunged into almost a terrible tragedy on the first day when the children were swimming in the pool. One of them went into the deep water and began to drown. And it was the gardener who heard the boys screaming and he plunged into the pool and he helped rescue one of the boys. And the youngster who was saved was none other than Winston Churchill. And his parents were so grateful that they asked the gardener, hey, what can we do to reward you? And he hesitated. But then he said, you know, I want my son to go to college because I think that he can become a doctor. And Churchill's parents said, we'll pay his tuition. And years later, when Sir Winston was prime minister of England, he was stricken with pneumonia. And greatly concerned, the king summoned the best physician in all of the British Empire to Churchill's side. And the doctor's name was Sir Alexander Fleming. Alexander Fleming developed the penicillin vaccine. He was also the son of the gardener who saved Winston when he was just a little boy. Churchill later wrote, 
Rarely has one man owed his life twice to the same person. The son became a doctor at his father's request. I like that because there's a good kind of a debt. You may be shocked to find out what that is. We owe God a debt. But God was willing to pay your debt in the person of David's son, Jesus. We're saved by our Heavenly Father who sent his son. Distress, debt, discontent. Look at that last word, discontent. The word is ma'ar, nefesh, which means a sort of a bitterness of the soul. J. Vernon McGee describes these men as bitter of soul. He writes, quote, the circumstances and experiences of life had soured them. I'm going to ask you a hard question. Does that describe you? Bitter in your soul? Bitter because of what happened to you in the past? Bitter because of the way you were raised? Bitter because of your mother? Bitter because of your father? Bitter because of the economy? Bitter, bitter, bitter. And you feel crushed and you feel soured. And you feel like someone's trying to ruin your life. Now you understand who David's disciples are. You know, in my sophomore year of high school, I was voted student rights commissioner. It was my job to take people's protest. And remember, in the early 70s, we lived for dissatisfaction. We lived for discontentment. We lived to protest. It was one of the worst years of my life. And it was one of the best years of my life. It was one of the best years of my life because it was in my junior year that I became a Christian. And I decided that I needed to give up protesting. Life clearly can make you bitter or. Yeah, you know. Life can make you bitter. Or life can make you better. The tragedy will make you bitter or the tragedy will make you better. The divorce will make you bitter or the divorce will make you better. The circumstances will make you bitter or the circumstances will make you better. As a matter of fact, Jesus is willing to take you. Even if you're bitter. In John seven thirty seven, it says on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out and he said, if anyone thirsts. Let him come to the cave at Agilum, where it's dark and lonely and damp and people who are in debt and people who are disillusioned and people who are hurt and people. Hey, wait, wait, that's not part of John chapter seven, verse thirty seven. It just says, if anyone's thirst, let him come to me. And out of your innermost being will come rivers of living water. Bitter water? I don't think so. 
But guess what? If anyone thirsts, I'm sure that David would allow the dark and the lonely and the damp place and the indebted place and the disillusioned place to be just the place that you need in order to get a fresh start. I know you're panicking, going, wait a minute. He's only on verse three. Let's hurry then. Then David went from there to Mitzvah to Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. So he brought them before the king of Moab and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now, the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now, you might think it's strange to find David in Moab. David, you're a Jew. Jews belong in Judah or Benjamin. But remember, several generations earlier, there was another family from Bethlehem that found refuge in Moab. And that man's name was Ahimelech. And he took his family to Moab during a major famine that threatened the family's existence. And there's a book in the Bible. It's called the Book of Ruth. And it records that incident. And David's father was a direct descendant of Ruth, who was from Moab. And this is probably the reason that the king of Moab will grant sanctuary to David's mom and and dad. David went to Moab and he was distraught and he was frightened and he was upset. But he knew that on the run, his father and mother were probably too elderly to take the journey that he had to take. Good idea or bad idea? I don't know. I think he should have remained in Israel. I think David promised that God would promise to protect him in Israel. But here's what I want to point out to you. Whether it was a good idea to go to Moab or a bad idea to go um, to Moab, it's easy to make decisions for others when you're not afraid. Have you discovered that to be true? Somebody comes to you and says, Hey, this is what you should do. Hey, you know what? You can decide when it's your mom and, and, and it's your dad. You can decide when it's your life that's under threat. Did David do the right thing? I can honestly tell you, I don't know. But here's what I do know. It's easy to make decisions for others when you're not afraid. And David cares for his parents the best way he knows how. And the dark shadow of separation is given a glimmer of hope as David anticipates that even as he leaves his mother and his father in Moab, he understands something. And I need you to understand something. Listen carefully. Will David become king of Israel? Will his mother and father be safe when he is king? Yes. You know, sometimes you as Christians, you might be in a circumstance where you're afraid. And it doesn't feel like you live in a world where Jesus is king. But will Jesus be both Lord and king? Is there going to come a time, according to the Bible, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? I think that the answer is yes. Look at the expression. 
till I know what God will do for me. Not what Saul will do. Not what fate will do. Not, you know, until I can figure out what kind of cruel hand life has dealt me. Faith reckons only with God. And so David says, till I know what God is going to do with me. You know, there's a remarkable reference in the book of Isaiah, and we're reminded of uh, David's son, the king. In Isaiah 16, verses 4 and 5, it says, Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioner is at an end. The devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. In mercy, the throne will be established, and one will sit on it in truth. The tabernacle of David judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. David's son will occupy David's throne. And in verse four, it says, so he brought them before the king of Moab and they dwelt with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. By the way, in verse four, where it says the stronghold, some Bible students believe the stronghold may have been Masada. And some of you have gone to Israel with me and you we've climbed this little mountain together. The Hebrew word Mesuda is that word stronghold in verse four. <laughs> so Moab may be a great place for David's parents to hide out, but David has to go back to Judah. And the prophet Gad gives David a word from the Lord. And now you have to understand something even about Gad giving David a word from the Lord. Does Saul have a prophet? No, Samuel's abandoned him. Does Saul have a way of hearing from God? Not really. Does David have a way of hearing from God? The answer is yes. There's a man of God who's willing to speak to the, to the man who would be king. And so David goes back to the force of Hereth. And by the way, Hereth in the Hebrew language means a thicket. And David again wrote about this in his journal. And you might just take a little note and put it on the side of your Bible and say, remind me to read Psalm 63. Because this is the song that will become a type of the anthem of Israel as as they journey on this pilgrim pilgrimage of rejection to acceptance. And when you read 63 in its context, Psalm 63, in light of David's pain and in light of David's sorrow and in light of David's distress, then you're going to see, wow, I understand this psalm in a way that I never understood it before. This is a song of wilderness sorrow, but it's also a song of wilderness grace. You see, here's the point. When your trials drive you to your knees, guess what? When you're driven to your knees and you lift up your hands in praise, God shows up in his loveliness. And you know what? When your loved one has cancer, when your child decides to rebel, when one of your loved ones is marched off to prison, when people refuse you and reject you and humiliate you, and when you're all by yourself and nobody seems to want you. David's son will take you in. David writes in Psalm 63, I'm just going to give you a tiny taste. 
Because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. And I will bless you while I live. And the sun goes down. And the darkness surrounds you. And sleep refuses to provide an escape for you. And the wind howls and the stars shine and the earth is hard and cold. And David is persecuted. He's broken. But he is not done. Look in verse 6. When Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered, now Saul was staying in Gibeah under a tamarisk tree in Ramah with his spear in his hand and all his servants standing about him. Then Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Here now, you Benjamites, will the son of Jesse give you every one of the fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captains of hundreds? Part of what you need to understand about this particular text is this. The speech is typical of the man. He's painting a picture of himself. He even draws his own son and David at colors of treachery and betrayal. He makes this speech and he goes, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, feel sorry for me. Now, this is interesting because that's always what the flesh does. That's the speech of the flesh. Feel sorry for me. Don't you realize I won't be king anymore? Don't you realize my own son has betrayed me? And by the way, the speech has the effect of drawing out Doag, the traitor. All of you have conspired against me and there's no one who reveals to me that my son has made a covenant with the son of Jesse, that's David. And there's not one of you who is sorry for me or reveals to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie and wait as it is in this day. Now, this is interesting. Then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who was set over the servants of Saul and said, I saw the son of Jesse going down to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, lie, gave him provisions, five loaves, yeah, and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. That part is true. (laughs) This is interesting to me. There's two kinds of leaders, Saul and David. Here's how Saul inspires the troops. Bribery and berating. Do you think that that's, does that motivate you? Does it motivate you to follow someone that when they go, look, if you follow me, there's something in it for you. I'll bribe you and I'll berate you. That's what a scheming leader does. I want you to think just for a moment. Scheming leaders produce scheming followers. I'm going to ask you a question. Does that sound true to you or no? Scheming leaders produce scheming followers. There's a biblical principle that like begets like. And so Saul uses bribery and fear. Now, David attracts men and women who are willing to risk their lives in order to serve him. 
And I think that that becomes an important and important principle as the chapter unfolds. So the king sent to call Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were in Nob, and all came to the king. And Saul said, here now, son of Ahitub. He answered, here I am, my lord. When it's time to die, Ahimelech is a very brave man. Look what he says. And Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me and the, and the son of Jesse? In that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is at this day. So Ahimelech said to the king, who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law? Who goes at your bidding? Who's honorable in your house? You know what? David has left me with the impression that there's nobody like him. No one is more loving. No one is more loyal. No one is more decent. Ahimelech speaks well of David, even when his own life is on the line. You know, I think that that's the true test of discipleship. What will you say about Jesus? Even when your life is on the line. By the way, Ahimelech means brother of the king and whatever love and loyalty the people may have had for Saul is about to completely disappear. So Ahimelech answered and said, who is like your servant? Who is faithful like David? Verse 15. Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Did he? Did he check the Urim and the Thummim? No. Far be it from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any in the house of my father for your servant knew little of all this, little or much. And the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Did he do anything deserving of death? No. Did he know? He really didn't. But Saul doesn't care about the law. Then the king said to the guards who stood with him, turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. But the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. Why? It's bad luck to kill a priest. Not necessarily. When I was a chaplain in California, in the city of Chino, they would make us wear a, a priest's outfit, you know, the black shirt with the white collar. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm a Protestant. They go, yeah, we know. But, you know, the, the gang members here think it's bad luck to kill a priest. And I thought, OK, I'll wear it. I think it's more than I think it's bad luck to kill a priest. They know that there's something fundamentally wrong there is something wrong about genocide. There's something wrong, wrong when you disregard basic decency. And the people understand something. And by the way, something will go, go terribly wrong after this point. Even the followers of Saul will be mentally and emotionally detached from him. Saul has no prophet. And now... He has no priests. You can't commit atrocity and you can't commit genocide and expect to stay in office long. And the king said to Doeg, 
You turn and kill the priest. So Doag, the Edomite, turned and struck the priest and killed on that day 85 men who wore a linen ephod. That means those who served in the temple. Also Nob, the city of the priest, or in this case, the tabernacle. Also Nob, the city of the priest, he struck with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkey and sheep with the edge of the sword. In other words, this was extermination. Saul creates a police state where every citizen is required to swear loyalty and report to the king. And in verse 20, it says, now one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the Lord's priest. So David said to Abiathar, I knew that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have caused the death of all the persons in your family. It's interesting to me that David accepts responsibility for his part. And the prophet Gad and the priest Abiathar are going to form an alliance against Saul, who becomes a type of the Antichrist. Saul rules in the place of God's anointed. And by the way, where there's a spirit of Antichrist, the people of God are brought into bondage and the word of God is either ignored or disparaged and the priestly to service to God is destroyed Just some quick notes. God is breaking David. But David is the guy who's willing to admit his need. And in verse 23, he says, stay with me. Don't fear. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. But with me, you will be safe. You know what? It's true. With David, he is going to be safe. Satan is seeking to destroy your life. But with David's son, you will be safe. Remember what David does when he's in this cave. He's willing to cry out to God. Are you? When David is in this place of discouragement and depression, he's willing to praise God. Are you? By the way, David turns the cave into a training ground to equip men and women for future service. That dark, black, empty hole will serve as the place where discontented, discouraged, in-debt people will have a second chance and form the nucleus of David's coming kingdom. You know what? It becomes a type and a picture of you. Even though you may not get this, When you walk with Jesus now, it's clearly a preparation for walking with him later. His kingdom here eventually will become his kingdom there. You'd be shocked at what I've left out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.
Lord, clearly. It's great to know that we can tell you exactly what we feel, that we can tell you exactly what we need. And that, Lord, we can cry out to you. That we can believe that you are who that you, you say that you are and that you're able to do what you say that you're able to do. And Lord, when we look at <laughs> Jesus, distant father, David. We see in ourselves men and women of like passions, filled sometimes with fear, filled sometimes with faith. But Lord, I pray that like David, we would find ourselves always in a place of confession and humility and also in expression of praise to you. In Jesus' name, amen.